Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Sunday, January 7th. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. Thank you for joining us for our first podcast of 2024. My guest today for the 50th episode of The Hale Report is Timothy Congdon, who heads up the Institute of International Monetary Research in the United Kingdom. The IIMR focuses on the impact of money and banking on the world's leading economies. Tim, welcome to The Hale Report. Hello, nice nice to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I understand you're speaking to us today from deepest Gloucestershire, if I'm saying that right. <laughs> Is that where you are today? In the countryside, right, of London? Well, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a deepest. I, I, say the, I say darkest Gloucestershire, like darkest Africa. It's a long way from London, but uh, it's still quite civilized. It's the start of a new year, and everyone is wondering what it will bring. Many got it wrong in 2023, thinking that China would rebound that U.S. equities would plateau, unemployment would rise, and that inflation would persist, driving the U.S. into recession. None of those things happened. For now, it appears that Jay Powell was able to navigate a soft landing for the U.S. economy and that monetary policy will begin to ease in 2024. Some economists, however, are not so sure that we have avoided recession and that it was merely delayed by unprecedented fiscal stimulus that is now coming to an end. Today's guest is forecasting just such a scenario for the global economy. Timothy Congdon is often quoted on his economic outlook by global financial media. He is one of the world's leading monetary analysts, regarded as the UK's leading exponent of the monetarist school of thought. He advised the Thatcher major conservative government on economic policy, serving as a member of the Treasury panel, the so-called wise men. After studying at Oxford, he started his career as a journalist at the Times, and he became an economist in the city of London. He founded the legendary research consultancy Lombard Street Research in 1989 with Doug McWilliams, after correctly warning that excessive money growth would lead to double-digit inflation. In 2005, he left Lombard Street Research to devote his time to writing about monetary theory and practice. His works include Money and Asset Prices in Boom and Bust, Central Banking in a Free Society, Keynes, the Keynesians, and Monetarism, Money in a Free Society. Tim, can you tell us about the meaning of Lombard Street and about the book for our listeners who don't know about British financial history? That was the inspiration for the name of your firm. Well, Lombard Street was a book written by a chap called Budget um, in, uh, I think it was 1873. Um, the, 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 the key issue here was, suppose you get a banking crisis and banks, are, they face a run. Um, should the central bank lend to them or not? And Badgett's answer was yes, as long as they're solvent. Um, and it should lend to them on a large scale very freely, but at the high rate, make it expensive and punish them in that way. That was the, the point about Lombard Street in 1873. And it goes on, then on for another, even to modern times. Uh, and in fact, um, I think um, Larry Summers said that in the great financial crisis of uh, 2009, 2010, uh, the author that he read most and respected most was Walter Badgett. So, uh, so there we are. That that, that the the, the um, Lombard Street was a book written by Walter Badgett, eighteen seventy three. Uh, it was about what was then the centre of the city of London back in those days. It was called Lombard Street. I think in my library, I actually have a a, a copy of that edition too. So, uh, but I'm afraid to read it um, because it's so delicate. Um, can I ask you the question that I ask all of my guests, which is, how did you first become interested in economics and what became your life's work? Was there some event that occurred or, you know, when you were five years old, were you, were you reading the Financial Times? 
Well, when I was 13 years old, I decided I was going to become prime minister. <laughs> and how was I going to do that? I was going to become Britain's problems in the 1960s were Britain's problems were economic. So I thought I was going to become an economist, and then chance to the Exchequer when I grew up, and then finally prime minister. And possibly I've gone into politics, that have happened, but I didn't do that in the end. So, so there we are. But that's how I became interested in economics. I was very, very young in my early teens. Wonderful. So um, you're known for um, your belief in the, in the quantity theory of money, and you argue that interest rates are not the only tools available to the central bank, but that they can increase or decrease the quantity of money in the system to affect economic conditions. Um, for those who are not economists who are listening you know, to, to our podcast, how do they do that exactly? How does the central bank affect the quantity of money? Okay, um, the main kind of money in the modern economy is, is the money we have in our banks, in our bank deposits. So the total, of course, notes and coin also are part of the story, but they're very unimportant relative to, to bank deposits. Bank deposits are the dominant kind of money in the modern economy. Obviously, they go up if uh, we sell something to somebody else. So if um, the, uh, um, the government comes along and um, buys anything from us, say our scruffiest pair of shoes, uh, and pays us, say, $1,000 for our scruffiest pair of shoes, we have $1,000 in our bank deposit, and that's new money. Now, that, that then, I've, I've obviously, that's very stylized, very sort of artificial, but what normally happens in these, epi in these episodes is that it's the central bank that does the purchases, the Federal Reserve in the US case, uh, and it buys government bonds uh, from typically government bonds. It can buy mortgage securities as well uh, from financial institutions, which increases financial institutions' bank deposits. They're also part of the quantity of money. And that, that then affects, the as the financial institutions start buying other assets, uh, this then affects the economy more generally. Um, and, and this was really the, the classic example here has been uh, so-called quantitative easing, uh, both in the, uh, uh, the Great Recession of 2009-10 and also, of course, um, uh, in 2020. Right. And, uh, of course, the Japanese invented quantitative easing, as I understand it. Oh, did they? I don't think so. I don't think so. In the Great Depression of 1929 to 33, we had a couple of people in Britain, uh, as John Maynard Keynes, a chap called Ralph Fortry. Ralph Fortry was running economics at our treasury at that time. And they agreed that the answer to the then very severe uh, depression, not just, but it was really, really, the USA was far worse than Britain, by the way, that the answer was actually to do what I've just, just told you. But essentially, the government or the central bank should buy up bonds on a very large scale uh, to increase the amount of money in the economy. Uh, and um, I always explain to people that, in fact, it was Keynes and Hawtrey who really originated this idea back in. And they, they, in fact, told the U.S. Treasury in 32 and 33, we've done this in Britain. You should do it in the U.S. And the U.S. did it. Uh, and in 1934, U.S. money rose by how much? Rose by 15%. After in the pre previous four years going down by about uh, over over about about forty percent, so the U U.S. monetary policy in the 1930s changed dramatically because effectively of QE, really on the advice of Keynes and Hawtrey. Uh, and what happened to the U.S. stock market in 1934? It doubled, and the U.S. economy also rose very strongly. It wasn't Roosevelt's uh, uh, reforms that, that that turned the U.S. economy around in the 1930s. It was QE. All right. Oh, that's a fascinating because the Bank of Japan usually takes credit for this. So this, this is uh, really interesting to hear what you have to say. Can I also just say on, the, on this front, I'm sorry to interrupt, Lyric, there's two ways of doing of thinking about this. The, the, the one way is where the central bank buys bonds from the banks. That doesn't increase the amount of money. The amount of money is bank deposits held by individuals, companies, non-bank financial institutions, and so on. That's what the amount of money is. If the uh, central bank buys bonds from the banking system, it increases banks' cash reserves at the central bank. It doesn't increase the quantity of money. 
The important thing is to buy bonds, in fact, buy anything, anything at all um, from us, the general public, companies and so on. That increases bank deposits. That's what really matters. And I'm, I bless the Japanese. I'm sorry, the Bank of Japan does not understand this subject. Okay. So it, so what you're talking about in terms of the quantity of money, is that M2? Is that the best way to measure the quantity of money? I always like to use a very broad measure. Can I just say in that, uh, I'm very much like Keynes, in fact. Not Friedman also was very much really a broad money man, but Friedman, in my view, not, not strongly enough. Um, we, we always want to thinking about, we've got these bank deposits, what do we do with them? And so we, we can have our, our wealth in the form of bank deposits, in the form of bonds, in the form of equities. If the quantity of money jumps very sharply, we're going to be buyers of bonds, we're going to be buyers of equities, buyers of houses, et cetera. Okay? So we don't want to have, if we just increase the amount of money, say, in site deposits, we can put the money in site, but too much money in site deposits, we put it in time deposits. That's no use. To get impact on the economy, you've got to hit something that's not money. You've got to, got to hit the bond market, the debt market, the housing market. That's why you need a broad measure of money. I'm always broad money. And in fact, in the US context, I prefer M3 to M2. The Federal Reserve no longer prepares M3 data. Uh, there's a company called Shadow Government Statistics does do so. I've just given them a little bit of a puff. They deserve it. The, 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 uh, the Federal Reserve, I'm afraid, I don't have much respect for it as, as a central bank. Uh, and they should be continued to prepare M3 data. It's M3 that matters, not M2. Doesn't it also then um, increase debt at the same time? No. When the central well, bank no, does, no, not at all. does this? No. Okay, explain why. The state sector has some debt, okay? That debt can take the form of, of um, long-dated bonds held by insurance companies and pension funds, okay? Or it can take the form of... Um, a cash balance, uh, a, sorry, a, 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 um, some, ca- some, some securities held by the banking system, which are matched by deposits. The, uh, uh, um, as far as the, we, we, the public are concerned, if we have long dated bonds, that's not money, all right? But if we have uh, uh, cash in the bank, that is money. The effect of these operations is not to change, uh, uh, this quantitative easing, is not to change the total of public debt is to change the kind of claims we have on the government, on the state sector. Instead of having long bonds, which, as I say, aren't money, and uh, you certainly can't use them in the shops to buy anything, use them on websites to buy anything, you instead have got money in a bank account, which you then can do all sorts of things with. The, The process of changing the composition of debt itself affects the economy. So my question is then, what is the relationship of that sort of is fiscal stimulus to inflation. How do, does that increase? If it doesn't increase debt. It doesn't change the quantity of debt. It changed the composition of debt so that the, the general public, the households, companies, financial institutions, so on, they hold money rather than long-dated government bonds. Uh, and that then changes uh, the, the uh, propensity to spend, changes macroeconomic outcomes. It isn't fiscal stimulus. It is a debt management operation, which is really part of monetary policy. I think that's really critical to understand in terms of your thinking, um, because I don't think most people understand that. Well, can I just say many, uh, this, this, one of the things that I find very frustrating in this subject is this idea that, um, which I'm afraid I have a lot of disputes with American economists about this, is that they kind of think that the only way that this can operate is if it's if it's fiscal stimulus, and they don't see the effect on the quantity of money. I mean, rather curious in all of this is that Ben Bernanke was, if anything, the Fed chairman, more than anyone else, you know, carried out these quantitative easing type operations. But he never talks about the effect they have on the quantity of money. To him, it's only the effect um, on, on bond yields that matters. Can I just emphasize here, and it's very important, by the way, to investors, that when the quantity of money goes up by, say, 10 20%, um, the impact of that on the equity market is bound to be positive. That's why when you get uh, rumors of, of QE, typically the equity market picks up. 
if you're a bond investor, you may, when you start out, you hear about these rumors, you may want to buy some bonds because you think that, however, to the extent that the QE boosts the economy and then raises the inflation rate, it's actually bad news for bond investors. Just to illustrate that, in 2020, um, we had COVID. The Fed reacted by asset purchases, QE. There was a huge budget deficit. The Fed happily monetized the deficit to help the government. There was a huge surge in the quantity of money, basically, between February and July 2020, M3 went up by about 20%. Um, and initially, that did indeed help the bond market. But it had a much bigger positive effect on, on the equity market. Remember how strong the equity market was in late 2020 and through 2021? Then we had inflation, and look what happened to bond yields through 22 and 23, all right? So if you're a forward-looking investor, you need to be thinking about the impact of these changes, the amount of money on, sure, the economy, an early favorable effect maybe on the bond market. But when it starts to affect inflation, it's bad for bonds. Okay. So now, though, what is the effect of the current situation since we're not at those highs for the quantity of money in the United States anymore? They seem to be going down or, or leveling, does that mean, is it negative? And inflation, however, seems to be going down. Is, does that mean it's bullish for bonds and bearish for, for equities at this point in time? Well, obviously, we went, we went through 20, 2020. No one was worried about inflation then, apart from me and my hands of other, other monetarists. Then we got to 2021. There was all this talk about team transitory and how inflation wouldn't last very long and so on. Then we got to um, early 2022, and finally, uh, the Federal Reserve and Keynes, like Paul Krugman, they realized that, in fact, inflation was only with us for some time unless action was taken to bring it under control. So the Fed started to raise interest rates. It also reversed quantitative easing and moved more towards quantitative tightening. So from essentially around about February, March 2022, the quantity of money, instead of rising strongly, started to go sideways, even start, even fall. Uh, and we had, obviously, in early 2023, we had some banking worries in the US. The quantity of money did go down then for one or two months. And so since around about, as I say, February, March 2022, US money has basically been static. Hasn't, hasn't changed very much. Can I just say here, in the spring of 22, um, when I saw these trends, I said straight away that inflation is going to come under control in due course. And I even said that in 2024, we might see 2% inflation, uh, which is, of course, now really quite likely. I have been surprised that we haven't had a recession, uh, like most economists, I suppose. But um, so the, the money trends uh, at the, from, from early 22 until today have been indicating much better inflation news. That's been helpful. It's been basically right. It still is the case in the United States that money is going basically sideways. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, um, I would remain positive about inflation for this year and next year. Um, and so that's good for bonds. I think the worry that we have about equities is, is just that the equity market has had such a big rise already. Uh, and um, you know what? On, on what basis of, of really positive news in the economy was this happening? Perhaps investors are buying the long-term growth story, the artificial intelligence, and so on. Maybe they're right. I don't know. Yeah. So the question is: Will it return? Will it continue in the U.S. at least? Because other markets have not been as positive. For example, China and Europe has not. Um, uh, is is this due to the? the uh, different policies that they've had it, with their central banks. Japan, on the other hand, had a phenomenal run in 2023. I'm not sure I can, if you ask me a very big question, can I explain all these different stock markets? And I, frankly, I can't. Um, I think as far as China is concerned, that uh, it, 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 one has to worry about the, the trends uh, in, in, in the political, constitutional um, ideological, if you wish, uh, kind of context of China uh, from uh, um, the mid-1970s until about, right about 2010, 
they were moving steadily uh, in a more liberal, um, more free market, a more Jewish capitalist direction. Under Xi Jinping, since really 2012, now over 10 years, um, it's been going in the other direction, going back towards uh, state direction, towards government control, to planning, uh, and the great, greater political control of business life. So that it's actually quite dangerous now to be a successful businessman in China. This is not a good place to be investing, frankly. Uh, and um, while Xi Jinping is there, I know I'd be pretty nervous about uh, buying Chinese equities. Of course, Xi Jinping may be overthrown at some point. Um, and, um, and at a different uh, kind of China, it, it, we, we, it, we move back to the kind of positive news we had under Deng Xiaoping and, and his successors. I simply don't know. Um, Europe, again, there's so much to say. There's lots of different countries, different stock markets, different influences. But um, the problem with, with, with Europe really is it's, it's held up now by its adverse demography, falling working age populations, and very slow growth of productivity. So it's difficult to get very bullish about um, economic growth in Europe for the next 10, 20 years. You are very much against um, uh, the, uh, the UK joining the currency union and the European Union. Um, are you, do you still feel that that was the right decision? What, that was Brexit the right way for Britain to go? Absolutely, it was. I absolutely, I, I, I this is something that was uh, I've had all, all my life, and it's been something I believe in very strongly. It, it's a question of really what one wants to do with you know, how one feels about one's nation, and um, perhaps I'm being naive, perhaps I'm being idealistic, but um, I think Britain has contributed a lot to the world over the, the last 100, 200 years. We have good institutions, and, and despite problems we have at the moment, generally it's been a successful nation. I don't think we want to surrender our, our sovereignty and our ability to govern ourselves. And that's what the European Union is about. European Union is about making all the nations of Europe into the equivalent of states of, of a federal union, just as the states of the United States, are, 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 they don't have full sovereignty over what they do. They're part of a federal structure. With, without their own currencies and so forth. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that exactly, yes. I think the, the, the um, i just make a couple of points here, if, you, if I may. We were told by the Remainers, the people in Britain who, who wanted Britain to stay in the European Union, that Brexit would lead to a big recession. Rubbish. It hasn't happened. In fact, the growth of the U UK economy has been very similar to that of other European economies uh, in the last five, six, seven years. We were also told that uh, there'd be a, a very disappointing growth in the longer run because the ratio of trade to GDP would fall. I've just checked the numbers. The ratio of trade to GDP at the end of last year was higher than it was in 2020 when we actually left the European Union and appreciably higher than it was in 2016 when we had the Brexit referendum. Outside the EU, we can have free trade deals with any nation in the world. We are free to do that. The result will be more trade, not less. The, the Remainers have been on that front also completely wrong. So do you think that COVID delayed some of the positive effects potentially on trade of Brexit and that we'll see more of them as time goes on and the world recovers? I think we'll see more of them as the time goes by, but 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 it, it, it's... Partly it depends upon you know, the attitude of the British government itself. I'm not sure how far this is of interest to Americans, by the way, Lyric, but if, let me give you an example. Um, we have in, in London a very successful uh, insurance um, business. It's led by Lloyds of London, but there's also companies that, that, that are active, including, by the way, a lot of American companies that have some of their insurance operations in London. Regulation is one of the biggest issues for insur insurance in industries. There's talk about, you know, London could be, Britain could be Singapore on Thames. Well, there's also talk about being Bermuda on Thames because we can try and change our regulatory structures to match those of Bermuda, which is a big insurance center. Outside the EU, we have much more scope to innovate, to do things that we favor us in, in this very competitive world we live in, 
And I think that this is a kind of example, by the way, the insurance industry in Britain is, is booming at the moment, that, that, that this kind of thing is, is, is a good illustration of the benefits, the freedoms of Brexit. So you believe that Britain did the right thing. Um, do you also, you mentioned that you're not very supportive of the Fed, but was Fed policy to raise interest rates the right way to go? And should they now be lowering interest rates in your view? as most people expect they will? Well, can I say first, the first of all, a crucial point. The important objective here is to maintain low growth of the quantity of money uh, to achieve uh, low inflation or price stability. That's the first thing, low growth of quantity of money. And secondly, to have stable growth of the quantity of money. And interest rate decisions, uh, decisions on quantity of easing and asset purchases and so on, should be subordinate to that objective of low and stable growth of the quantity of money. So whenever I'm answering these questions, I always want to come back and emphasize it's money that really matters, okay? Um, Sure, I accept that interest rates are central bank's key instrument. I accept that. But they should be set with the objective of low and stable growth of the quantity of money. Now, at the moment in the USA, the quantity of money is going sideways or falling. And the economy is obviously, uh, it isn't in recession as such, but it's obviously weaker than it was, say, 18 months ago. So my inclination is to, yes, interest rates should be lowered. Um, I have been surprised by the buoyancy of the US economy in, in, say, the second half of 2023. It was a surprise to me. Um, So I, I, I can't claim, frankly, to have any special expertise over and above what I've just told you. My inclination would be to reduce interest rates. I, I think interest rates in the USA have peaked, um, but but I, I I I I'm if you like I, I I'm not so I'm not wildly uh, uh, um, advocating a huge interest rate reductions. I'm not in that position. I think what you just said definitely um, echoes a Chicago economist, Milton Friedman, who said the same thing about the the low stable growth of money, right? With, with his famous statement on that. Uh, absolutely. You see, Chicago, it, it was, it was um, Milton Friedman of the Chicago School, University of Chicago, has had a massive influence on me. And, and um, I suppose there are really two economists who I really respect from uh, the, the, the last century. One, one was, was obviously Friedman, the other one was Keynes. And it's funny how people think that they are opposites, not really. Keynes was a great monetary economist, and in many ways, um, you know, I think Keynes and Friedman, if you go in a room, they'd have chatted friend, in a friendly way. They'd have been, they'd have been, uh, they'd have been good company for each other. <laughs> well, to me, one of the things about lowering the interest rate that's important is that it increases public debt every day, right? And you have have talked about and written about public debt. Could you explain what your concerns are of on U.S. public debt? Well, it's not just me who's worried. Um, Larry Summers gave a, a talk to the Peterson Institute in Washington a, a, a few months back, where he said that it was quite plausible that um, the U.S. budget deficit would be over 10% of GDP uh, for some years uh, later on in this decade. Now, look, I, I, I respect Larry Summers and admire many things he says. <clears throat> However, uh, I'm sorry. We can't have the USA year after year with budget deficits of more than 10% of GDP because the debt would simply explode. Uh, the truth is that the Congressional Budget Office also is very worried about all this. Uh, and um, the International Monetary Fund, which is you know, you know, very respectable, very cautious, they themselves have estimated that the underlying US budget deficit is about 9% of GDP. Now, the problem here is that if the debt keeps on rising relative to GDP, then obviously interest has got to be paid on the debt. Interest is itself part of public spending. So as the interest bill rises, so does public spending. If tax is not going up, the budget deficit's rising too. Budget deficit means more debt. That means yet further increase in interest costs and the thing and the whole there's a sort of a never-ending downward spiral into bankruptcy, default, inflation, etc. Kind of thing you see in Latin America. 
Now, historically, the United States has never gone down that path, that, down that kind of disastrous route. The numbers, to me at the moment, are very alarming. My concern is, 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 is shared by other people like Larry Summers. Something's got to be done on this, on, on this area of public policy. And what would you prescribe, Tim, to do if you were made the Treasury Secretary? Um, how would you handle this issue? Well, the first thing is I would uh, put out a clear statement of the objective to reduce the deficit. You know, make, make a very clear written statement, the deficit must come down. Now, the numbers are so bad that it can't be done, the correction can't be done in one year, even two years. So it should be done over, say, presidential term, four years, uh, perhaps even a decade, two presidential terms or a decade with some kind of bipartisan agreement. So you, you would commit yourselves, uh, at, presumably at the start of the of presidential term, obviously we've got one coming up starting in 2025, um, to, to reductions in the deficit from 9% at the moment to say 7.5% year after, 6% year after that, 4.5% year after that, 3%. And this would be, I think, credible because it would be something that the, the changes would, would come through rather than one fell swoop, that come through gradually and in ways that the American political system might be able to deliver. My big worry here is that uh, achieving bipartisan uh, cooperation and agreement would be very difficult given the current polarization in American politics. Uh, and um, that uh, um, when also struggling at the moment to try and find any politician who's prepared to talk about this topic. I mean, one may have one's doubts about President Clinton, but President Clinton was worried in 1992, 30 years ago now, he was worried about the increase in public debt then when the debt was only 60% of GDP. It's now 120% and rising fast. So, you know, where are, where are the politicians in the United States that are prepared to talk openly about this subject? Oh, I think the Republicans are. And, you know, they're using that. They're using um, requests for funding, for example, for um, Ukraine and Israel. Uh, they're counterbalancing that with um, funding for border protection uh, with Mexico and also for reduction in the deficit. So I think people are very concerned about that um, on the Republican side. So it is a one-party issue. You're very right about the polarization. So we'll have to wait and see how things change in you know, both the, the Congress and the White House to see what might happen with that. But I think people are, are concerned. Um, you know, the economy has been doing well, and people are wondering why uh, people don't have more confidence in it and saying that the and one of the reasons might be that they're aware of this issue, that the population in general is aware of this issue and concerned about public debt. So it will become a political issue in the election. Okay, well, I think that's very interesting and very, very important. And there's no doubt that obviously Clinton won the election in 92 and was then a two-term president. And he did, by the way, bring down the ratio of debt to, to GDP substantially. He was fortunate in that it was the end of the Cold War and defense spending could be reduced. But at any rate, he did bring the debt down. Um, so if we accept that the Americans, American people, if you wish, were, were, were worried about the debt in 1992, when it was only 60% of GDP, they should certainly be worried about it now when it's twice that as a share of GDP. Um, well, I hope you're right, Eric, because to me, the, the larger issue here is, uh, can the USA, if it has this huge public debt problem, can the dollar remain in the long run the world's reserve currency? Can the USA itself uh, continue to provide uh, support to its allies, military support, and so on? And well, there's no good alternatives to it. Well, that's for discussion. I mean, I, I, that's for discussion. I, I agree there is no single power that remotely matches that in the United States. However, the West as a whole includes other sensible and, and very productive nations. So we shouldn't get too pessimistic if the USA goes isolationist, but I hope and pray the USA doesn't go isolationist. <laughs> I hesitate to ask this, but what are your views on cryptocurrencies 
as a replacement for central bank currencies. And I'm not talking about central bank digital currencies, but extra systems of currencies that exist outside sovereign nations. Well, well should I, let me just first of all say that I, I'm not a I'm not an expert on on crypto at all. But um, they, if I were living in uh, Somalia or Libya or, or, or Syria or somewhere like that, then um, I would expect certainly I'd be worried about if I had any money in my bank could it be stolen, uh, and uh, I'd be worried about. Somebody turning up in the middle of the night and saying, "We want all the diamonds in the house, please. We want all the gold in the in the basement." So, <clears throat> in places like that, one can see that cryptocurrency serves a purpose um, because um, it, it gives people uh, a means of making payments. Um, but these are, you know, I'm sorry, these are horrible places. These are these are not the you know stable Western civilized democracies kind we live in, and um, the to me, I can't see why anybody, frankly, should want to have cryptocurrency. Very expensive to make payments with with crypto. There's all sorts of risks, and you can be cheated. And um, to me, the the it's 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 a, it basically for um, the criminal classes again to hide um, the assets. Uh, it's about money laundering. It, it's about tax evasion. Sorry, crypto is not something that I would. You know, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty unattractive part of, of the modern economies. Uh, and um, obviously what's happened to some of the crypto exchanges in the last year or so is pretty shocking. So I, I, I totally uh, you know, deplore crypto, to be perfectly frank, while accepting that it has a, a, a valid role in you know, marginal societies where, where the rule of law doesn't really apply. And what do you think about, yeah, the price of gold has gone up uh, this past year as well. And crypto actually has been, Bitcoin has been the best, I believe, the best performing asset over 2023. Gold has also gone up. I, I think that says something about confidence in the system that currently exists. Um, do you think we should have um, a gold standard? I, I don't like the gold standard. I I, I would, I believe that, that we should, we should live in rational, successful societies where um, public finance is in good order, where the uh, inflation's under control. I think all the things are perfectly possible. But I'm afraid that the disarray in American public finances, and by the way, in the public finances of my own country and other European countries, um, is a very bad and discouraging uh, sign of our times. Essentially, uh, um, the political elite uh, cannot control um, the, the budget deficits, um, you then get this risk of, of never-ending increases in debt interest and uh, um, downward spiral into bankruptcy, inflation, all the rest of it, or that Latin American kind of way. And um, if you were running, say, uh, the foreign exchange reserves of India or Indonesia or, or, or Brazil or whatever, and you looked at the US public finances, you saw the kind of analysis that can be the next 10, 20 years, how do they get the public finance under control? Do you want to hold US treasuries? Do you want to hold dollar deposits? Well, in some sense, you have no alternative. But there is some gold. There is gold. And, and gold is the, the ultimate uh, safe haven in a very uh, uh, um, disorganized, uh, disorganized world that, that we, we may be coming into. And so it's not surprising that people are buying gold um, for safety, as, as a hedge against uncertainty and, and uh, possible, you know, political uh, disorder, even in a, in a country like the United States. You know, my concern about gold is that the supply is unknown and could change based on some sort of new technology like shale for oil, um, or exploration in space could reveal new deposits as well that we would be able to mine. Although right now they would be prohibitively expensive, but that cost will go down over time. So uh, my concern is that the supply could could expand. And um, I think that's why I'm uh, more positive about things like Bitcoin, because there is a limited known supply. 
And I think that's why it's gaining traction here in the U.S. And we could probably next week have some uh, simultaneous announcements of ETFs for Bitcoin. It's rapidly becoming here in the U.S. something that people see should be part of their portfolio. But the more important thing, I think, is what it signifies. And it's this and and perhaps it goes back to the question of U.S. public debt, that people are losing confidence that somebody's in charge and doing something about lessening it. Derek, I don't like Bitcoin. Um, I have most of my, I'm now in my 70s, most of my career I've been rather, dis, not dismissive isn't the right word, but skeptical about gold because I, I like to think that um, humanity can organize its financial affairs rationally and successfully. But now, you know, we see what you see what's happening with US public debt, crucial subject. And one, ha- one has to be very worried about what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years in this area of American public policy. And so um, if I, for me, the, the uh, safe haven asset would be gold. I'm surprised what you say about um, being worried about huge increase in supply of gold. Most of the gold that um, we have in the world has already been mined. Um, you know, the, the stock of gold uh, is rising, I think, by about 2% a year. And by the way, the costs of extracting it are rising. So, so we're reaching a, a situation where the, the, the amount of gold um, in, in, in around everything we can extract from, from, the, from the earth has, has, has already been extracted. And um, so I don't, I'm not worried about um, a sudden massive increase in supply. Yeah, I think I'm a techno-optimist, and I think if there's money to be made as the price rises, that the technologies will improve accordingly. And and we could find there are deposits in places that we couldn't before. Well, no, no, no doubt technologies will improve, but, but um, you know, the, 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 when you think about, you know, in the 19th century, there was always gold in California, which led to people going to California and many Californians began, began, that's how it began. Australia, they went to Australia. They've got the gold from from, from the, the riverbeds that was there in those days. It's all gone. It, it's nowadays getting gold requires to moving, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's a, a, a thousand times as much soil has to be moved to get an ounce of gold as, as was the case uh, 150 years ago. Extraction costs are going up. Well, since we are um, just at the beginning of 2024, um, I'd love it, Tim, if you would share your forecasts for what you think will be happening in 2024 in terms of possible recession in the UK, um, what could happen in the US, geopolitical shocks. We have, I think, almost half the world's population uh, is eligible to vote in an election in 2024, so we could have all kinds of political changes. You know, what concerns you? What are what are the things that that worry you about this this new year? Well, my worries, I suppose, to be pretty straightforward. Obviously, the Ukraine war is the focus of everybody's concern, it seems to me, because um, if Putin were to win that war, it'd be just such a bad signal um, for the long run uh, credibility of, of, of the West. Uh, and so I, you know, I do understand why. Uh, um, there may be some doubts about the money being USA spends uh, on sending weapons to, to Ukraine. However, it is very important that uh, Ukraine doesn't doesn't lose its war against Russia. Um, the uh, um, obviously worries about China and Taiwan. I'd say that the the change of political course in China in the last decade is it's, it's been a very uh, a huge disappointment to to many people, and um, uh, as far as more mundane matters, if you wish, I would expect a recession in the first half of 2024 in Northern Europe. That means um, Britain, Germany, and France, and then other European countries will be affected by that. Uh, um, Inflation is going to come down. Um, I have, I've been basically wrong about the US, you know, I'm like many other people. I, I was expecting that inflation would fall a lot in 23, which it has done, um, but, but I'd expecting it to be in the context of a recession. It hasn't been one. I don't really understand why 
the USA has been so resilient. And um, having said that, there are still negative signs for the USA. But how is it, you see, if you've got a stock market that's near its peak, that's not a negative sign for the economy. That's saying that people feel well off and they like to spend more, et cetera. So, and employment is, remains very, very high. Well, yes. The, the, in, the US, in the USA in particular, we've got very low unemployment. I know. I mean, it, it, it's, um, th- that's obviously suggesting that the, the good news on inflation won't continue. Um, well, I know, and I think that the, the, it, the, the many people are expecting a, a, a tailing off in growth in the USA in early 2024. Well, that fits with the story of a rather, um, for the world economy as a whole, a rather mediocre year. One bright spot, though, I think will be India, uh, because there's been very rapid money growth there, and uh, no doubt there'll be some inflation in due course. But at the moment, they've got quite a big boom going on there. Uh, of course, they've got a general election coming up. I need to, hardly need to mention that, but there we are. Um, so it, it's it's a mixed picture, but um, I would be um, generally rather ne- not not sort of negative about the world economy. Just saying it's going to be a rather rather dull year, difficult year. Mm. I think um, in terms of Ukraine, the focus, as as you know, I think um, of Americans has very short duration on certain topics. And I think definitely focus has shifted from Ukraine to Israel and Gaza at this point. Very little discussion of Ukraine, an enormous public debate about Israel and Gaza and the U.S. involvement in that, that will be, I think, uh, very important in the elections. And then um, I agree with you on China completely that the <clears throat> this shift in the focus away from a market-based economy over the last 10 years has been catastrophic. But I do think that that makes it less likely that Taiwan, for example, will get invaded in 2024 because the economy's in such bad shape. And the reaction, um, the economic sanctions, for example, that China would face would be, would be disastrous and would result in the fall of the government anyway. I, I don't think China will invade Taiwan. Um, I mean, I think what what's uh, the the, the um, it's very it would be very difficult to actually get get you know tens of thousands of troops uh, across the 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 um, the strait there. They just got a bit of water, a few hundred miles of water. That's uh, very very dangerous for to get uh, very risky and dangerous. I mean, I think what's going on in China is that um, Xi Jinping. It's taken this cynical view that the way to stay in power is to control the secret police and the army, and the way to keep the army happy is to spend money on weapons um, but by threatening Taiwan. But the, the, the stability of this system depends on the fact that there isn't actual fighting. There's always, they keep on threatening, and they keep on justifying the military. That keeps the military happy, that keeps the secret police happy, that keeps the Communist Party in power with Xi Jinping at the top. It's a pretty ghastly kind of way of running a country, but that's what's going on. But in a sense, it's stable. Um, we never can be sure because nobody would have expected Putin to do something stupid as to invade Ukraine, but he has done. Can I just, before we close on this uh, lyric, just say that the Ukraine war and the problem in Gaza are very different things. The Ukraine war, um, there are almost certainly correct that, that Russia has lost something of the order of 300,000 men have been killed, badly wounded, and it's still rising because they're, they're, they're still, this is, a, this is a major war, all right. Um, the, and Ukraine will have lost again tens of thousands of men. We don't know the exact figure, maybe, but again, it will be probably over 100,000. This, this is a very nasty major war. What's going on between Gaza and Israel? It's very nasty too. But, you know, it began with the events in early October, horrible events, but only a few hundred people affected and killed. I don't, 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 I know it's pretty ghastly and horrible, but, but that only a few hundred. And although Gaza, what's happening may, may be brutal, the rest of it, we aren't talking about tens of thousands of people being killed. It's more a kind of policing operation. It's much smaller. So, um, and I don't think it's going to cause a wider Middle East flare-up. So, um, 
there's obviously been this problem uh, with the Houthi and the problems in the, uh, the, the, the the Red Sea and so on. But again, this is not something that the Ukraine war is is a kind of existential war about Putin and Russia, uh, and what what is the West all about? And it, it, it's a big war. It's a nasty big war. We sh- we should have much more focus on that than on what's happening in the Middle East at the moment. Mm. I think people, although the U.S. is pretty self-sufficient in energy, so the Middle East doesn't play the same role that it used to, um, but I think still the supply issues and the sea lanes and so forth, the possibility of Iran uh, becoming more involved, I-, I do think people are quite concerned that this conflict could erupt into a regional conflict, which would mean that trade flows were were uh, interrupted, and that would lead to something similar to what we saw with with COVID. Yeah, that's why the concern, I think. Well, obviously, these issues are for discussion and debate. In my view, Iran is not a major military power at all. It it it's uh, it, it 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 throws money at it, its various uh, sort of Hezbollah and Hamas and so on. They're troublemakers, um, if I may say so. Um, the, the USA and the West in general has behaved with some restraint towards Iran. Um, the um, if if the West wanted to knock out uh, um, Iran militarily, it wouldn't be very difficult. Uh, and and the, uh, uh, um, the in my view, this the whole thing has been very much um, over dramatized. Um, in fact, in many ways, what's happened in the Middle East in the last five or 10 years is very encouraging because there has been uh, diplomatic relations established between Israel on the one side and the Emirates, Bahrain, and so on on the other. There's obviously been diplomatic relations between Israel and Jordan and Egypt for many, long, many of 20, 30 years now. So in many ways, until last October, things are going in the right direction. And I think apart from the problem of Iran, that that remains you know, the, a good, good grounds for medium-term optimism in the Middle East. Well, that would be a very happy thing um, if that does, does not expand this year. Well, Tim, we've covered a very wide range of topics here today, and I think um, very thought-provoking. And I'm hoping that people will continue to listen to you and follow you. Um, Thank you for joining me today, Tim. To learn more, please go to his website, which is mv-pt.org, or you can find him on Twitter, IIMR underscore Buckingham. Or better yet, search Timothy Congdon on ResearchGate for a comprehensive list of his publications throughout the years. And thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, especially our producer, Sam Fu. You can find this and other podcasts on Substack, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you again, Tim, for joining me today. Thank you. Much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.